the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Scott, are you waiting for the package you just ordered? Maybe. Great, Scott. Scotty, beat me up. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. It's great to be with you today on this fine Friday, beautiful day here in Southern California. And uh, we got a lot packed into our show today, and uh, we will do Open Line Friday. We'll do it next hour, so stay with us. Open Line Friday is when you can call in with anything that you would like to talk about. We'll also talk about the absurdity of the week in the next hour, so we'll get to that. I think you will enjoy that. So a little bit of Monty Python for you that came true uh, just about 40 years later. And this hour, Officer Dion will join us, and we're going to talk about mental illness and homelessness and uh, he's going to have a great perspective on that, and you need to hear that. I think it's important for all of us to understand what really is going on from somebody who has spent 25 years on Skid Row working with homeless people as a police officer. So uh, a lot going on, and we'll get to, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Armageddon, unless the bombs uh, start dropping here in just a minute on this program, and Biden's comments about that. You can join our conversation by calling 888-528-2557. You can send me an email at SoCal live at kkla.com socal live at kkla.com and i'm going to get your calls for a little while here unless you want to call on the topic but next hour we'll do uh we will do the open line friday okay so if you're watching the news one of the big stories today there's so many stories so many things that we can uh talk about and uh you know most of them are are kind of sad and depressing so let's talk about armageddon because that is in that i don't think in my life I have heard a reporter ask the president of the United States, is it possible that Armageddon is coming? This was President Biden today uh, outside the White House. And you can hear the helicopter noise in the background. But a reporter asks him about Armageddon because he was overheard at a Democratic fundraiser saying that we're that that is something that's possible right now. Here's what that exchange sounded like. She says, do you think Armageddon is coming, sir? And this is because the president was uh, overheard at a fundraiser. This was not an official speech, but this is what he said. This is how Andrea Mitchell reported it on MSNBC. Speaking off camera at a Democratic fundraiser, saying that we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Jake Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The president adding about Putin... He's not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military, you might say, significantly underperforming. So there we go. Suddenly we're having a political conversation about Armageddon. Are you worried about this or is this it feels like even though this is kind of in the news today, it feels like this is a little bit, uh, you know, page five stuff. You know, it's just not quite on the front of the newspaper. Uh, not quite there. Um, or do you think this conversation is overblown? I don't know. We're talking about it. President Biden warned on Thursday that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is inviting the highest nuclear, he said, pr- quote, prospect of Armageddon since the Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, 
I'm just kind of blown away at this. It matters a lot, obviously, because if the president is right about this, then we're going to have a crisis that we've never seen. That is much bigger than the Cuban Missile Crisis. You ever follow that? You're old enough for the Cuban Missile Crisis? I'm not, but I've studied it, and uh, I've seen a movie. There's an old movie, kind of old, with Kevin Costner, and uh, the actors in the movie are great. It's called 13 Days, and it is a great movie. There's some things that they they you know fool around with on there, um, but they're you know historically and they do that in movies. But it's a really good depiction of what those 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis were about. And if you're unaware, uh, during the midst of the Cold War, President Kennedy and and uh, Premier Khrushchev of the Soviet Union, and uh, he was the uh, you know, the old bald guy who yelled a lot, dah, 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 that guy from Russia back in those days, he uh, was sneaking uh, nuclear weapons into Cuba, just 90 miles from Florida, and close enough that they could hit Washington, D.C. within uh, just a few minutes. And we, our spy planes discovered them, and it became a huge crisis, all right? It was, it was a, major, a major deal. It was frightening. It was possible that in those days... Uh, maybe nuclear war would happen. It was a very intense uh, several days. Eventually, President Kennedy told the nation about it, and they wisely decided not to invade, I think, Cuba. People might have a different opinion on that, but looking back, probably the right decision to do the naval blockade and to stop the Russians from going in and wisely figuring out that probably Khrushchev wasn't really planning on nuking the United States, but he wanted something. And through back channels and other things later, we promised to remove some missiles from Europe, and there were some exchanges that way. And, and in a way, the Russians got what they wanted, but uh, it was a victory for President Kennedy. He really did probably handle that pretty well. And uh, there were other things that he, he didn't handle very well, but uh, that he handled pretty well. Anyway, I think the situation is is different. Um, I think it's, uh, it is a lot different. Here's what the president said. He said, we've not faced this prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis. The first time, he said, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, that we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon um, if things continue down the path they are going, the president said. He said, I'm trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp. Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he does not only lose face, but lose significant power within Russia? Now, the reason he's saying this, if you haven't caught up with the news, and we haven't talked about it for a little while on this program, but uh, Russia has not done well in their invasion the whole time. And, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a three-day war, and we're on day 225 or something like that. And it really looks like right now that Ukraine is going to win, that the Russian soldiers are being beat and they are losing ground. And even though they had this uh, sham vote recently that uh, where people supposedly by 98 percent voted to become Russia, um, Putin's army doesn't even control those regions very well. And the Ukrainians are kicking them out. And they're doing so, though, with help from the United States and from NATO. And Putin certainly knows that. And we did talk about this last week a little bit, that Putin has some notion of saying hey, uh, you know, I'm going to declare these areas Russia, and now if you attack during that, you're not just defending Ukraine, you're now attacking Russia. See what it means? If, if you declare that this area in Ukraine is now Russia, and the Ukrainian army goes in there to remove the Russians, well, now they've invaded Russia. See that little game that he's playing? And that's what he's using to uh, give his excuse for using any and all means, is what he said, including nuclear weapons. 
uh, on the Soviet or Soviet. Every time we talk about this, the word Soviet comes out of my mouth. You know why? Because it's pretty much the same thing. The, the Kremlin responded to Biden's comments and said uh, that they were an appeal to start yet another world war with unpredictable, monstrous consequences, according to Russian state-owned media. And uh, the White House responded uh, with the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. She said that, uh, our, you know, she was asked, are we changing our nuclear posture as a country because of these things? And she said that she has not seen any reason to adjust or own our adjust our own strategic nuclear posture, nor do we have indication that Russia is preparing to imminently use nuclear weapons. So there's a lot of questions today about whether or not uh, the president knows something that we don't know that hasn't been revealed, and that's why he made these comments. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I kind of think that because it wasn't an official speech, I, I believe maybe Biden is just big manning it with his donors. Hey, you know, we got this nuclear thing. Look at how busy my job. I know it's a serious thing. But it's just, you know, he's been around long enough, you know, to sort of, and he says stuff. You know, some of the things that people will say he's uh, senile about, some of that for sure, I think that's real. But otherwise, it's also Biden. He's been the same guy saying weird stuff for 40 years. So I'm not sure that he's that much different. Um, I'm bringing this up, though, because for us as Christians, certainly, number one, don't worry about nuclear war. I mean, you should be concerned about it. But, you know, if that's going to happen, it's going to happen. Uh, you got to live your life. There's all kinds of bad things that can happen. There's all kinds of things we don't know about that could have happened uh, that didn't. And, uh, you know, you just have to live your life and serve the Lord and trust him for these big things that are out of our control. And there are things you can do. You can vote. Maybe we get people who handle it differently. That certainly is part of it. But you still, your job, my job is to make disciples. Our job is to love Jesus and love people to speak the truth, to be wise in our decisions, and whatever's going on in the world, those things are going to happen. Eventually, there will be uh, Armageddon. I wanted to talk about that because it's a biblical word that gets thrown around a lot, but it's a word that is, it's not, a, it's not an event. Biblically, Armageddon is actually a place, all right? It's a place where the final battle at the end of Revelation that is also prophesied about in Zechariah and some other books. It's where the final battle happens, okay? At the end of time, the actual return of Jesus, the end of the tribulation, that's when Armageddon happens. The word Armageddon, it, uh, we use it to mean catastrophic conflict, okay? You know, two years ago, we were talking about climate Armageddon, right? And uh, that was one of the election terms from 2020. Now we're talking about nuclear Armageddon. My, how things have changed. And it's sort of used, right, in that in that sort of way, like mass destruction. But Armageddon in the Bible is a place. The word ultimately comes from the Hebrew word Har Magadone, which means Mount uh, Megiddo. And it's a predicted location of the final battle. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, it says, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's the only place the word is used in the Bible, and it's a place. And then you have some other uh, prophetic things going on. At the end of the book of Revelation, you have God wrapping up everything. This is, the, this is the end, and it shows the destruction of government systems, the destruction of the bad people, the destruction of different kinds of sin and injustice and a whole lot of stuff. You get to Revelation 19, and it says, verse 11, 
I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And this is a vision, okay, if you're if you're new to this. John, the John from the Bible, John from the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that John, at this point he's an old man. He is banished uh, to an island, uh, Patmos, I believe, and he is given this vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what revelation is. It's the It's how everything will wrap up. Most people believe John is the only one of the original apostles not to die of uh, being a martyr, that he probably died of uh, old age shortly after this. So the, the language is symbolic, and there's a lot of Bible study that you can do. You know, Revelation is a book that um, a lot of it, if you just sat down and you read it, you'll be blessed by it, by the way. It even says you will. It'll take you a couple hours maybe to read all the way through it. And the truth is, is there's a lot of it you may not understand, but you will understand the main point of it. You will have no doubt what this book is about, and you will not be you will you will be amazed at how well it fits into what we're seeing on the news every day today, and in our cities, and uh, kind of all around us. So it's symbolic of what those things are going to look like at the end. He's describing uh, Christ here. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then later, verse 19, it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and, <clears throat> and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. This is Antichrist, the, the Antichrist. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Does anybody have that passage, like, on a plaque on the wall in their house? Do you have that on a T-shirt and a mug? <laughs> you know what? It, when you read about Armageddon in the Bible, it actually sounds like a pretty quick battle. That uh, God brings everybody together. Uh, for this final battle, and Jesus comes back and brings an end to it. Uh, I think it happens very, very quickly. There's not, we're not sure what the exact location is of Armageddon. Uh, There's no mountain that we know called uh, Megiddo, but there is a a way to translate that word. Har can also mean hill, and the location most people believe is the hill country surrounding what's now known as the plain of Megiddo. Uh, It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem, and throughout history there have been a lot of battles there. Egyptians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans, Crusaders, all fought there. Napoleon fought there. World War I was fought there. The Arab-Israeli War in 1948 was fought there. There's a lot of war that happens in that valley. It makes perfect sense that that's where everyone would be gathered for this final battle. The uh, book of Zechariah chapter 14 talks about this as well. The day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. This is the very end, okay? This is the end of time, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the end of the tribulation. This, by the way, is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, and uh, we're talking about uh, 
Armageddon and how that's in the news today because of President Biden's comments saying that we're closer to Armageddon than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I thought we should know as believers what Armageddon actually is. Zechariah 14.2, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake. It's not going to be a good day, all right? However, at first it's not a good day, but then it turns into a great day as Jesus comes back. Verse 8, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it to the east of the dead, to the Dead Sea, the other half to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. Um, later, he goes on to promise that this will be, Israel will be restored. It will never again be destroyed. And if you, you know, Jerusalem will be secure. If you read the Bible all the way through, at the end, all of the promises to Israel are fulfilled. At the end, every injustice is brought back to the table and resolved by Christ. Everything is made right. And if you read it, it's violent. A lot of it's R-rated. You know, you, you may not be comfortable with these, this language, but if you're not, I would, I would encourage you to take a look at the news today and ask yourself, are you comfortable with the violence and the evil that we see right here in our own city? what we're seeing on the news, what is being feared, that's real life. And if you look through world history, it's war, it's, it's barbarism, it's terrible things. This is what sin does. And the promise of God is that it will not last forever. We have a Savior, his name is Jesus, who if you put your faith in him, whenever you die, you'll have everlasting life. And you'll go to a new heaven and a new earth where these things will not be in play, where these things will not be part of your life. You don't get there by being a good person. You get there by believing that Jesus was a good person for you. And he paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. That he he died for all this evil. That those who confess him as Lord, that believe he died for their sins and rose again on the third day, those people get to go to heaven because of faith. That's the gift of God. It's called grace. You can have that. That is what this is about. And it's, you know, it's going to end in a lot of violence, but then ultimate forever peace. This is our hope in Jesus Christ. All right, so there's your Armageddon story for today. Do you feel better about it? I don't know. It's just weird to me that the president will use the word Armageddon, that this is in the news, and they're not really using it in a biblical sense. But I think that when we hear the word Armageddon in casual, even secular language, I think it's a reminder that somewhere in the back of our mind, I think we recognize that this is where history is heading, that it all makes sense. All the stuff that doesn't make sense today, it makes sense that it's headed somewhere. If you want to know where you're going in life, you got to ask the question where you're headed and look at your path. And where are we going as as uh, humanity and all the nations today? Battle of Armageddon in this place. I think that's where we're going. All right, there you go. Hopefully that's helpful. And, you know, if you're scared about this stuff, you know, don't be. Uh, we've God's in control of it. He is these, you know, God wins. The people with the Lord, they win. And evil is destroyed. It does not have victory. And therefore, you should be empowered in your job to love your neighbor, to love people even who don't love you, to love people who are in trouble, to love people and to, to give of yourself. Because our goal 
is to let them know Jesus so that they don't suffer in this way. All right, I'll take your call here. I'll take one call, and then we'll go to a break, and we'll have Officer Dion here in a minute. Uh, Mark, thanks for holding on. Mark from El Segundo, welcome to Southern California Live. How you doing, Pastor Scott? Uh, very interesting uh, stuff that you're talking about there. Uh, on the same uh, level, I, I want to mention um, I've been hearing a lot about, uh, you know, God's in control uh, but as far as politics are concerned. But politics are everything. I mean, you know, if, if we all voted in mass as a church, we wouldn't even be talking about this abortion issue or they wouldn't have got God out of schools or same-sex marriages. And, you know, we didn't even put up a fight. And I'm guilty, too, okay? In other words, God wants us to do things, uh, you know, as well. You know, let me, let me say this, you know, Noah had to build an ark. Moses had to go to Pharaoh. Joshua had to fight the battles. Mm-hmm. Ruth had to sleep at Boaz's feet. The Apostle Paul had to witness before Caesar. We had, you know, God is in control. He really is. But we got to do the footwork. And if we don't go vote, then, you know, wow, God gave us a brain to discern good from evil. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know. Mark, I appreciate that. I got to let you because I got to take a break here in a minute. Um, but you know what, what I would add to this is that we don't know that Armageddon, it looks like it's coming soon, right? You talk to a whole lot of people, it looks like. Armageddon is coming up, uh, you know, any day now. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. We don't actually know that anything bad is going to happen. We might be at the in about to have a great revival as everybody wakes up to what evil is and what causes it and turns their heart to Jesus. That might be who we are. Mark's right that in the meantime, you know, we have a job to do. One of those things that you can do in our country is is vote. Your ballot comes out next week, so the you know, just keep in mind your election is not November eighth. The election begins Monday. By the time November 8 rolls around, more than half of people in California will have probably already voted because of our early voting and the mail ballots. So that's one thing you can do. But regardless of how that election turns out, the Lord is still in charge. And eventually things are going to get bad before they get good. That's what the scriptures, uh, I believe, what they ultimately tell us. And it's another reason we shouldn't be fearful. It's another reason that You know, if we do not have revival, if things get even more difficult, look to your scriptures and go, well, this is how it has to go, and Jesus is on the throne. He's not confused by it. All right, friends, in a moment, we've got Officer Dion with us. We're going to talk about homelessness, mental mental illness, and some other things. Stay with us on Southern California Live. You do not want to miss Officer Dion here in our next segment. I'm Scott Furrow. I'll be back with Officer Dion as the Friday edition of Southern California Live continues. Welcome back, everybody. Southern California Live. Scott Furrow with you today. You can send me an email at SoCalLive at KKLA.com. In the next hour, we will do Open Phone Friday. So any issue that you want to talk about, we'll talk about that next hour. And But right now in the studio with me is, once again, Officer Dion Joseph. He's a law enforcement consultant who has been an officer for over 25 years, 23 of those years in downtown Los Angeles in the Skid Row community. And if you've heard Officer Dion on our program before or elsewhere where he is a speaker, 
and uh, or maybe you've heard him on another program somewhere. He is a very unique person who gives a helpful perspective on homelessness and the mental health issues surrounding it. And we're going to talk about that today. Welcome to Southern California Live, Dion. Thank you for having me once again. Yeah, it's great it. to have you, and uh, thanks for being here. Are you a baseball fan? you follow sports at all? You know what? Not really. I was kind of raised to be a Dodger fan. <laughs> yeah. I just like the Dodgers because my dad liked them, but I am enjoying what I'm seeing with the Dodgers right now. Me too. Now we can start getting nervous. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> we've got a couple of days. We'll see who we're going to play. Uh, the Padres are in the playoffs. You know, we're going to watch that. They're uh, Padre fans listening to our program in San Diego today. So, Oh, sorry, Padre fans. We're going to whip them too. So, yeah. <laughs> Dodgers look too good this year. The Dodgers look that good. Do you feel like like we have to win because of the record 111. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Yeah. You know, I remember the Golden State Warriors. I'm a Laker fan, yeah. heart, but I saw the Golden State Warriors uh, get that 73 uh, win record that year, and I was like, they have to win or to be considered the greatest team. That's right. And to get there and to fold the way they did, that just puts a, a, a damper on the whole season. It's like, it, like it was off or not. Yep, it does. I'm I'm right there. So we'll get nervous about that next week. All right, uh, Officer Dion, you have. Um, I think one of the the best experiences to really speak into the crisis of homelessness that we have in our country today, and certainly in uh, in every major city, and and obviously Los Angeles, uh, where you have worked for twenty five years, mental illness is a big piece of this conversation, right. and we throw that out there in the news. We hear mental illness. Uh, what are your thoughts about mental illness? How should we be perceiving this when we hear about it? Well, first of all, you know, especially people of faith, and I'm glad I'm talking to people of faith, uh, do not forget your brothers and sisters who have been basically thrown away by the system. Mm. Uh, You know, uh, America's solution to, quote unquote, helping the mentally ill, unfortunately, back in the 70s was to close down the asylums. Uh, you know, you had uh, both sides of the political spectrum were kind of responsible for that. Everybody wants yeah. to blame Reagan. Everybody wants to blame the ACLU. Everybody wants to blame Kennedy. Everybody, please stop for a second, and let's not get our partisan finger pointing going on right now. It's a combination of all of them. We had the folks on the right who were like, uh, "Let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's just shut them all down and and forget about them." Right? And then you had our folks on the far left who were like, "Okay, well, let's create uh, these programs that don't work and keep them going." Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and spend a lot more money on spend those a, throw more money at it, and hopefully something will work. Well, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. So that's where we at. Those two far extreme uh, ideologies is what kind of created the best we're in. And a lot of these individuals, when those uh, signups were closed, which I agree, they were inhumanely here in our study, the things that were going on there. Of course, that's something we don't want. Mm-hmm. But I would say fix the bathwater. You know? yeah. <laughs> fix the bathwater. So now we have individuals who have been released. Many of them have fallen into the arms of family members who did the best they can to care for them, but it's a challenge. It is a real challenge. And then others, uh, many others, ended up being pushed in, dumped in, or dropped off in places where I work, like Skid Row and Mm. other places across the country, where they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, because there are quote-unquote services there. And I want people to understand what's happening to these individuals. When they get to these places that are supposedly had services there, right, where you want to contain them. And people say that all the time. Well, we don't have any services. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, Uh, yeah. We're going to throw them somewhere (laughs) where I'm not sure that they have enough services that work anyway. Yeah. You know, and I believe the services would be effective if they weren't where they are, you know, that, you know, to a degree. 
But they get there, and here's what happens to many of them. They take their prescribed medication, and they stop taking it because it makes them feel lethargic and mm. down. And in places like Skid Row, it's what my son's called turned up. You know, you can't be down in turned up bill, right? Mm. you got to be ready to defend yourself, protect yourself, or you're going to be vulnerable uh-huh. to a whole lot of horrible things. So they stop taking their prescribed medication, and they end up uh, self-medicating on the hard stuff. And we've discussed this before, cocaine, methamphetamine, and yes, even marijuana for individuals like you and I, we could smoke weed. Not that I smoke weed, folks. I don't smoke weed. <laughs> we'll put that down. Don't, don't, neither, don't put it out there, folks. Neither do I. But uh, although my neighbors have, and it kind of comes in the window, and you kind of wonder. Don't put it out there. Don't tweet it. Well, why do I want weed. so many Doritos all of a sudden? I don't know. No, I smell it all the time, though, but yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised I don't get a contact. But yes, for someone struggling on the spectrum of mental illness, it can have disastrous consequences. Mm. So so what happens with these individuals, they start to, and that's when they become a police problem. Look, being a paranoid schizophrenic, being a drug addict, I mean, being a bipolar, being depressed, these are not crime. You were listening to a police officer and thousands of police officers. If you just have a conversation with them mm-hmm. and instead of demonizing them, they'll tell you the same thing. These things are crime. Look, I can handle a guy if it's just paranoid schizophrenia. I got a buddy named John who likes to climb up on top of buildings. Or he used to before he passed away. Yeah. <laughs> and I can just talk him down because I have a relationship. But mm-hmm. when John is on spice or when John is on uh, methamphetamines, he's not coming down. So now you have a chemical buffer between you and the person in crisis because now it's not just paranoid schizophrenia. It is cocaine. It's meth. And they're not just hearing 20 voices. Now they're hearing 20 voices. Now it's 40 because of the drugs. Mm. And now my voice trying to calm them down and get them into custody so to get them some help. And on top of that, we're in 2022 where everybody's kind of anti-police. Now you got people pulling out their phones, yelling and screaming, don't shoot them, don't shoot them, don't shoot them. When the only voice the person needs to be hearing is mine. Mm. And next thing you know, it can result in some kind of tragic circumstance when uh, that person you're trying to help sees you as a six-foot spider wearing a Santa Claus hat. Right. It, it, it's, it's impossible. And what used to bother me is a lot of mental health clinicians, uh, not I mean, experts, would say, you know, oh, the police should never be involved. The, I'll never forget there was this college professor who invited me to his college campus to challenge me on my views. And he told, he kind of greased the wheels before I got there. I kind of was like coming from a, a deficit position when I talked to the students. And he says, uh, oh, the first thing police officers do is use deadly force against the mentally. I'm like, oh, my God, how are you you're telling this to the future great minds of, mm. of America? And I intervened. I said, well, thank you for the introduction. Uh, excuse me, class, I have a question for you. Right. <laughs> I said, Professor, you're a guru, right? You, you've been doing this for years. You've worked with clients individually. Uh, and he said, yes. I said, now, what would you do if you were handing out sandwiches on Skid Row in the middle of Six of San Pedro? And you saw one of your former clients, hair matted, uh, grinding their teeth in a state of bruxism, uh, pupils dilated, their fists are balled up, and they're screaming at the sky and slap boxing with city buses coming at them at 35 miles per hour, threatening to kill anybody who comes with five feet of them. You are the expert, sir. I want you to tell your students what you would do to calm him down. Please tell them, Mr. Expert. And he scratched his head and had a moment of clarity and said, well, of course, I'd call the police. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's, of course, what you It's the oddest thing. It's really easy to criticize until, uh, you know, you're, you're brought to the actual situation that's going on. Yes. And yes. I think as, as you're, you're saying that, you know, the mental health problems, you're listening to Southern California Live. My guest is Dion Joseph. He's Officer Dion. He has been working as a police consultant for the last 25 years. He's spent 23-plus years on Skid Row. He's an expert on homelessness and and police activity with the homeless. Uh, his website, by the way, is dionjoseph.org if you want to check him out. Dion, you, 
we often sort of see this as another problem, but is this everybody's problem, the mental illness problem of the homelessness? Is it just something oh, you you just said, we're going to interact with people. We we never know if we're going to be interacting with somebody who might cause us harm just by walking down the street. This is an everybody problem, isn't it? This is an everybody problem. We're seeing it increase every day. Thanks to Prop 47, 57, AB 109, a lot of the people that were released from the uh, prison system due to these irresponsible laws, some of them struggle with mental illness. So yeah. you're on the street and we're seeing... There was no place for those people to go that no, made any sense. Absolutely not. Right. And a lot of you're, you're seeing some mentally ill people, and I always say it's not their fault, it's the system's fault. Shoving elderly people in front of city buses, we've seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we're seeing, uh, we had a model uh, who was walking down the street and got hit in the face with a, with a metal object. That was a Kim Glass, Kim right? Glass. She, Olympian you know, Kim Glass, she's a silver medalist. She's a, she's a silver medalist. And that was just a tragedy, but it, for me, that's nothing new. We're seeing that every day. And for us or our government not to have a sense of urgency to change it in a real way, a real way that can actually help these individuals rather than further furthering the creation of the homeless or mental health industrial complex, which is going to fail. And here's why. A lot of these individuals have total autonomy. You can throw Mm -hmm. all the money in the world at these individuals, but unless they're court ordered or mandated or into some kind of treatment program that stabilizes them before you release them, we're going to be talking about this problem 20 years from now. And, uh, and what we have now, the tools that we have right now are inept. And it's a shame that we've been forced, law enforcement has been forced to use them. And it's, uh, I'm sure many of you guys have heard the term 5150, uh, the, the Welfare and Institution Code. And this finally gives officers the authority to detain somebody to help them uh, for 72 hours or less if they're a danger to themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. If they're a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or if they're gravely disabled. And uh, the common thread with all three of those prongs is it waits until it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yes. Look, I have driven down the streets, and there's several individuals who I know by the end of the day, they're going to be in a hospital for 72 hours. And here's right. why. One guy who will stand in the street, he just swings his fist. But under the eyes of the law, he's not hurting anybody. He's just swinging his fist in the air. But I already know in my heart that by the time my shift is over, he, he's going to hit somebody. But unfortunately, I can't react off of that. So we're limited in how we can uh, uh, intervene. And it renders many of us, not just law enforcement, uh, mental health, our wonderful mental health service providers, uh, as after-the-fact entities in the lives of these individuals. And it puts everybody in danger, including them. That's right. Yeah. We're all coming in too late. You're listening to Southern California Live. My guest is Officer Dion Joseph. And uh, Dion, when we get back, uh, you're going to talk to us a little bit about what you think the fix is for this and some things that we can do Mm -hmm. to begin the process of, of turning this around. So we're not just doing the same thing 20 years from now and having the same conversation, but with three times or four times as many people, Right, exactly. I think is what we're looking at. This is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. My guest is Dion Joseph. Go to his website, dionjoseph.org to learn more about him. We'll be back as the Friday edition of Southern California Live continues. Welcome back, everybody. Southern California Live. Scott Furrow with you. I am with Officer Dion Joseph, Joseph, who's a Law enforcement consultant and a friend of our program, Southern California Live, who for over 25 years has been working in Los Angeles Skid Row community. We're talking about mental health with the homeless and what we need to really know about it. Because, uh, Officer Dion, there's so many things that are just not reported well or reported so quickly that people don't grasp you know, what it is. And maybe we just say, 
oh, it's mental illness, there's nothing I can do, and we move on, but it affects every single one of us. And, you know, what happens to a person who's mentally ill? How do they get there in the first place? Well, many of them, it's through trauma. You know, and mm-hmm. let's be honest, a lot of people have traumas in their life. Some of them, it's, it's hereditary. They have a history of it in their family. And then others, it's through long-term drug use. It's basically just decimates their mind, and they end up, uh, you know, just yeah. just living. And <clears throat> I'm not calling them animals, but sometimes long-term drug use causes people just yeah. crawling through the streets like animals. What percentage, just in your opinion, maybe you don't have an actual stat, but in your opinion, working with people so long as a uh, law enforcement officer, how much of it is drugs versus how much of it is genetics? I would say about two-thirds of it is, is drugs. Mostly drugs. It's mostly drugs. Right. And you'll have someone who will have mild and manageable cases of mental illness that they can manage on their own. But once they delve into the world of the hard narcotics, the Schedule One narcotics, then they go to the point of no re- almost no return. Uh, and without proper help and without uh, really getting that long-term help, they are pretty much done for. There's no hope for them unless the good Lord intervenes. Mm. And I'll give you an example mm. of where the system fails. Like I told you uh, before, 72-hour hold. Right. When they meet that criteria, when it's too late and we actually get a hold of them and they're in that downward spiral, uh, it's not even 72 hours. Many of the hospitals now are full. So uh, I get the why questions from community members all the time. Why do you guys uh, take them in and they get released right back out? Well, that's not my fault. Right. <laughs> Don't blame me. <laughs> I got them. You didn't right? turn the key and let them out. You can go. It's all right. But uh, what, what happens is when they get to the hospitals, because the hospitals are uh, overwhelmed and sometimes full, well, they do what's called present. They present Mm -hmm. well because their issue is primarily now narcotics. So because they want more narcotics, they'll try to clean themselves up and tell the doctor I'm fine. It's amazing how people have that ability. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like people even with, uh, you know, who are going through dementia or other stuff, suddenly they're brilliant in front of their doctor for 10 minutes. Absolutely. And then when they're out in in the elevator, they don't know who they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, drugs is the same. So they present, the doctor gives them pills, and they release them in six hours, and then the cycle repeats. Mm-hmm. And that's where the ultimate failure is. But we'll talk about the solution to that towards the end. But I want to get back to talking uh, about the mental because I, I don't want to come across as trying to dehumanize them, because in my mind, they're the victims. They're yeah. the vic- real victims of systemic failures. Uh, and when I talk about systemic failure, I'm not talking about the woke version. That's, right. that's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> Real, tangible, systemic failures. And uh, uh, as a police officer, boots on the ground, I remember there was this uh, uh, woman who was screaming bloody murder in a tent, and she was being raped. And uh, and when we entered the tent and we rescued her, you know, she was saying she was being raped and she was naked, and, you know, something happened to her, you know. But she doesn't make a sexy case to be filed by the district attorney's office when she thinks her attacker was Santa Claus. Yeah. Or when she says her attacker was the president or somebody like that, you know, and that's the challenge we face in helping victims of serious crimes who are mentally ill. Then it's hard to find them to get them justice often because they don't want to be found. Uh, You know, they could be hiding anywhere, overdosing in a tent. Then the the other uh, side of this, which is equally horrifying for me and sad and tragic. It's when they become suspects. I remember, you got to understand that I have relationships with these individuals. When I say I know them by first name, I know their birthdays. When it's their birthday, I pin dollars on their chest. When they're sober, mm. say happy birthday. You know, they I know me. I think people need to know that, that, yeah. that you have a relationship. You're not just an officer driving by. You right. know these people by name. You're on foot skid row and surrounding yes. areas, yes. And which I think is an amazing part, not just of 
you being a police officer, but as part of your ministry. Yeah. And everybody, every officer has it. I'm not talking about just me. That's right. Every officer has somebody they connect with that that, that will listen to just them. And I I just happen to have a whole lot more than their average. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, there was this one beautiful soul and her name was Jennifer. Mm -hmm. And she was really had the mindset of a, of a 12 year old. Uh, And, but when she was off of her meds and uh, smoking crack cocaine, she was extremely dangerous. And she had been put on multiple mental health holds. You would think after their 10th or 12th one, let's do something different. But it didn't happen. So one day she was released too early uh, from jail. She had just assaulted somebody. She was released very early. And she got her pills, didn't take them. And she was walking. We had this crazy event called Art Walk in downtown. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, she was walking behind this uh, family, a mother, a father, and their uh, infant who was inside of a crib. And you had hipster mom, hipster dad, and hipster baby walking down the street, and even the baby had a man bun. You know, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Jennifer walks up behind these people, and she looks at the baby, smiles, and then grabs the baby by the feet and starts pull the baby out of the stroller and starts slamming the baby against the walls. And, and a lot of people were angry at Jennifer. Not one bit of my anger was towards Jennifer. Mm. My anger was towards the system that yeah. fails her. So I want people to understand is that when you see officers having to go hands-on, use force, it's not for a lack of education or compassion. It's just oftentimes we're struggling with that chemical buffer that even the most well-trained mental health professional will not approach. They'll call us first. So right. we got to be real about that. And we also have to have police and are uh, people in the mental health profession working together. And we saw that happening in 2014. We actually had a somewhat successful program. But, of course, after uh, Mike Brown and after the, uh, the murder of George Floyd and all these things, there was this call for a separation, a divestment mm. of police from everything, which was the – and I'm sorry, listen, it was the stupidest thing you ever heard. You're taking away the one group of people who can direct you to the most vulnerable because we contact them first we know where they are but you want to take us away and i'm not saying we're here to we're the solution but we can guide you to where the most problematic individuals are who need the most help so so these are the things the general public needs to know uh these stories where officers lose are cool and those are those are one-offs those are anomalies but for the most part officers are struggling and i'm proud of the fact that the officers i work with and i can't say where (laughs) we work in the mental health capital of the world and it's rare that we get into those situations, but often some, but every now and then it can be uncontrollable based on what they're high on at the time. Yeah. It's a very dangerous, I think people don't realize the danger and it's every day. It's yes. not like it's, you know, once a year this happens, you know, this is every day in your life and the life of a lot of officers Yep, uh, that's going on. So uh, Dion, uh, you're listening to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. My guest is officer Dion Joseph. Dion, what is the solution? I mean, what's the fix in your view how do we get started? We got a long way to go, but where do we start? From my view, uh, boots on the ground, like I, said, I don't claim to have all the answers, but after 24 years, 25 years now of seeing the worst of the worst and seeing the problem, I have some suggestions. And one of those suggestions is if we really care about the homeless and I want my friend from civil liberties groups and our politicians to listen to me very closely, put down your partisan nonsense. And it has to not be 72 hours. It has to be six weeks. And here's why. 
it takes six weeks. If someone's been off their medications for a long, it takes literally six weeks for them to benefit from the therapeutic attributes of the medication to stabilize. You would not let a, a, a open heart surgery patient off the operating table in 30 minutes. You wouldn't do that. Right. You know, so why are we doing the same thing with people who are having severe mental health breaks in crisis? Uh, it should be six weeks. Not only for that reason, you got to detox them. Like I said, two thirds of the individuals who are mentally ill out in the streets are suffering from some form of addiction. So you got to detox them first so you can hear them, medicate them and stabilize them. And while you're doing that, the professionals who I know could do a wonderful job if they had that environment, uh, could get to know them, understand who their family members are. And this is where our political leaders can come in, streamline the process of conservatorships to help family members help their loved ones get some control of their life. You know, not yeah. control them, but actually help them with their finances, take them in and, and help them. Now, we're right. spending billions of dollars oh, right yeah. now on home. That's not working. So I don't. I don't think that the problem is money. Is it just politics? Is that the reason we can't get started? Because I think everything you just said. I think almost everybody agrees with that to a right. certain degree. But that, that costs money. But but see, people mistake. You can't throw money at everything. And we, as we're seeing that right now, you can't throw money. It's not money. It's method. You might have to spend big money to solve the problem, but you'll save money in the long runs and lives. Right. But that's not how people look at that. Oh, it's going to cost too much money. Or I'm worried about the fight I might have with civil liberties groups. You know, I'm not talking about taking away somebody's freedom for the rest of their life, but get them stabilized. And if they can't connect them with loved ones and they get released back into the streets, at least they're in the habit of taking their medication where they won't recidivize uh, again for a longer. And now I've seen that work yes you know but when you're just releasing them and saying oh they let them have their autonomy it just creates a recipe for disaster and too many people have died too many people have been hurt and it's evil and wrong for us to continue down this road officer dion i want to thank you for being with us today obviously there's a lot more that we can talk about and uh, one of the joys that we have is we get to have you on our program often so we'll have you again and we'll talk about this thank you for what you are doing and your fellow officers each and every day we cannot thank you enough uh, for what you're doing for everybody, but specifically for these people who are mentally ill, who who are being loved by you. And we yeah. it's great. You're right. They're not the victims. And we all as believers, we've got to have that attitude. And I just want to thank you guys for giving uh, law enforcement a voice. You know, I'm not claiming to be the voice for everybody. Every law enforcement officer is going to have a different opinion and idea. Uh, and But there's, it's coming from a good place. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. This is Officer Dion Joseph. He's a law enforcement consultant who's worked for over 25 years, a big part of that in the Skid Row community and with homeless people. If you want to get to know him more, go to his website. It's DionJoseph.org. DionJoseph.org. This is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. We'll be back with Open Phone Friday and the absurdity of the week as soon as we get back. The number is 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557. I'm Scott Furrow. This is Southern California Live. We'll be back as the Friday edition continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.